Greetings, friends and family. It is the weekend of Sunday, October the 4th, and I hope that you and yours are doing well. We're going to continue looking at the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, and we're picking up chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Life worthy of the gospel. Listen as I read God's word. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Tough, tough scriptures this morning. Let us pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be wholly pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Today, as we continue our study of Paul's letter to the Philippians, we we come upon a passage where Paul reminds them, and, and then you and me as well, that someone has died on our behalf. And this someone was not just a good man. He was the only perfect man to ever live, to, to, to ever live for, for he was God's only son, his only son. And to me, at this point in this letter, it's, it's almost as if Paul is, it's almost like he's breathing his last and, and he he, ha- he does his sort of mentally reaching out to draw all Christians close, and he kind of whispers to us almost, like, conduct yourselves, conduct yourselves. Remember who was died so that you might live. So we look again at verse 27, and, and we'll see what, what I mean. And Paul says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, don't, under- don't misunderstand me. In this verse, Paul was not saying that we could ever do anything that would make us deserve Christ's death on our behalf. The scriptures speak completely to the contrary of that, and so does Paul. He, he wasn't inferring that it would be possible for you and for I to live in such a way that we could somehow earn eternal life. No, if there's anyone who understood the doctrine of grace, it's Paul. He, he knew and he repeatedly taught that we can never earn or ever deserve Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. Remember that what Paul wrote in Ephesians, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We can, we can never be worthy of Jesus' death for us. But in this verse... Paul is saying that knowing that Jesus died for us should somehow impact then how we live. It should impact or we should attempt, excuse me, to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Our behavior then is an expression from the cross, from salvation. As he wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 15, those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Now, you and I are to live our lives in a way that is befitting of Jesus's death for us. I mean, if we truly understood what Jesus endured for us, then of course we would want to try to do something 
anything to please him. And, and if we did that or anything to help us understand what Jesus has done for us, surely we would want to live in ways that would make him proud. Well, in today's text, Paul says that one thing that we can do, one way, one way that we could conduct our, our lives if we were trying to be worthy of Jesus can be found in the way we respond to suffering. This is tough. This is a tough text. For when we react to tough times in a godly way, we give irrefutable evidence that we are followers of Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 28, this, this is a sign that we are indeed saved and that by God. When Christians, when believers are persecuted, when they face times of suffering and still continue to follow Christ faithfully, people notice they see that we have something special, and they hunger to know what our secret is. And this does please the Lord. If you've missed the last two Sundays, let me, get, let me get you up to speed by telling you that this is the third in a series of sermons based on, on Paul's letter to the Christians at Philippi. And up to this point in his letter, Paul has been talking about his own suffering, his arrest on false charges, his imprisonment in Rome, but Paul knew that as he was writing this letter, the Philippians were suffering for their faith as well. And the book of Acts records that he had left Philippi after a storm of persecution and that that persecution was inherited by the Philippian church. In verse 30, he, he alludes to this when he says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, here's the hard part, right, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The truth is anyone living like a Christian in a non-Christian world will face persecution of some sort. You see, suffering is not optional for the believer. Persecution is not something we can pass by on the buffet table of discipleship. I love banana pudding, but I just can't eat banana pudding down at the dessert at the dessert end of the table. I have to take a little bit of everything. I have to take it. And I can't opt not to put on the plate of our life suffering. No, if we are a Christian, suffering is inevitable. Second Timothy three verse 12 says everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. For you old school Dallas Cowboy fans, I, I grew up watching the Cowboys, watching the Redskins, the Steelers. A reporter once asked Roger Staubach, former quarterback of the Cowboys, about football injuries. And he asked, how do you keep on playing if you're playing professional football? And, and, and Roger replied, if you're not playing hurt, you're, you're not playing football. Understand, we don't suffer because Jesus wants us to. Our Lord is not some cruel drill sergeant who delights in making life tough for his recruits. No, suffering is unavoidable for Christians because we live in an imperfect world that is hostile to the one we follow. It's, it's surprising that we're constantly surprised at this, isn't it? You see, every aspect of Christ, his character, his teaching, his attitudes and responses to life, all of this is a threat to the reign in the realm of the God of this age. And if we follow Jesus, if we pattern our lives after him, we will face suffering for the same reason. It shouldn't surprise me for Jesus warned me of this. He warns us of this. In John 15, he said, 
If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. And if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. But so much of my energy is spent clinging and clawing and scratching to hold on to the world of which Jesus has pulled me out of. Well, in our scripture for this morning, Paul cites two ways that we should respond to suffering, two characteristics that all disciples should embrace if they are seeking to live a life worthy of Jesus' sacrifice. First of all, he says that when suffering comes, we have to stand firm. Verses 27 and 28, Paul says, one day I will know you are living worthily is when, or one way, excuse me, I will know you are living worthily is when you stand firm without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. The, the phrase is translated standing firm. In the Greek, the word is stichete, which, stichete, which and, and it means tenacity or perseverance. So in this verse, it's referring to hanging in there, being constantly loyal to Christ, no matter what happens, following Jesus just as closely when suffering comes as when it is absent. It, I think it's the same word Paul used in Hebrew 12.1 when he says, let us run with perseverance, stichete, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Paul is saying that we have to keep on keeping on, following Christ, living according to his written word in good times and in bad. It reminds me of the story of the the 104-year-old man who was being interviewed by a newspaper reporter. And the reporter asked, how did you do it? How did, how have you lived so long? And the, the, the centenarian answered, I, well, I ate the right food. I got plenty of sleep each night and didn't fool around, never indulged in alcohol, smokes, or chewing tobacco. The reporter replied, well, I, I had an uncle who lived like that, but he died at 55. Can you explain that? Sure, the old man replied. He just didn't keep, keep it up long enough. <laughs> well, many times as believers, I, I, I don't keep living for Christ up long enough. We're, we're living for Christ for, for a while. Initially, we try to live worthy of Jesus' sacrifice, but before long, I, I revert to old ways, to almost like a default on a computer. Tough times come, and we fall away. We don't persevere. We aren't consistent. And this has a devastating effect on our attempts to lead people to Christ. I mean, think about it. What's the typical reaction of a non-Christian when they hear of a dramatic conversion to Jesus Christ in the life of maybe a friend, a coworker? Do they say, oh, that's wonderful. Tell me, tell me all about it. How can this happen to me? Well, no, unfortunately, it, it's, that's not usually their response. Most of the time they say things like, well, born again, did, didn't so-and-so-and-so do that for a couple of months? Yeah, yeah, I've heard that before. Cynicism. And in this text, Paul is saying, listen, do you want to point some people to Jesus Christ? Do you want to prove to them that you have indeed been saved? Then live consistently before them. Live for Jesus Christ day in, day out. Live for Christ when the charts are going down as well as when the charts are going up. Live for Christ when you get passed over. Live for Christ when no one wants you to join, to join you. Live for Christ when unexpectedly tragedy takes your breath away. Live for Christ when living for Christ costs you something and you've got to pay. Live for Christ when people leave you because they don't like the way that you're living for Christ. They want to live for Christ in a different way. Live for Christ sets you up for ridicule and scorn. Living for Christ for the long haul. 
the consistency of our everyday life will have a profound influence on people whose lives we're trying to impact. Therefore, Paul says to the believers at Philippi, are you leading steadfast lives? Are you showing the kind of consistency to the people you're trying to impact? Are you hanging in there even when times are tough? Are you committed? Staying at it, hanging tough with dogged determination. People will notice when we do this, when we consistently follow Christ, no matter how difficult it is to do so. Paul advised young Timothy, hey, be prepared to live for Christ in season and out of season. Watch your life, your doctrine closely. Persevere in them. There's that word again, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. 1 Timothy 4, 16 and 2 Timothy 4, 2. So, so what about us? What about you and I? Are we living for Christ as we once were? Was there a time when we were really radiated Jesus, but now we're kind of back to normal? If we really want our community to see the difference Christ can make, then we need to be consistent over the long haul. How Sherbeck writes, press on. Nothing in the world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are important. So the first thing is we can stand firm. And then secondly, the second quality that Paul urges all Christians who are enduring suffering to display is unity. And and I know, I know we've talked a lot about unity because that's where the scriptures have been taking us. But as we look at verse 27, Paul says that we are to stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Now, this is something Christians have always had difficulty doing. We tend to divide rather than unite and work together. Yet this was Jesus's last prayer before his arrest and crucifixion. Remember his last words referring to the 12. He said, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those that will believe in me through their message. Hey, guess what? That's me. That's us. That's you. I pray that all of them may be one father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. In his book, God's Dream Team, Tommy Tenney writes, excuse me, that this is the only prayer that the church has the ability to answer. I'm, I'm not sure exactly how I fall in line with that, but it's a provocative thought. And I think Jesus is still waiting for us to answer this prayer. I say this because <clears throat> at current, there are about 28,000 different Christian denominations in the United States. And most of them tend to work independently, not as one. But the worst effect of this trend towards disunity is that it costs us our credibility with a lost world. You see, there's no reason for the world to believe Christians are from God if there's not an observable difference. Paul Bilheimer says the the continuous and widespread, widespread fragmentation of the church has been the scandal of the ages. It has been Satan's master strategy. The sin of disunity probably has caused more souls to be lost than all other sins combined. You see, people outside the family of God observe political infighting and and ugly power struggles all the time. Did you watch the debate the other night? They see it in governmental affairs. They see it in business sectors and institutions and in organizations, and it sickens them. 
More and more people have, have come out of families that fought and bickered and battled to the point where they are emotionally bruised and they wonder, will I ever be able to find a group of a, or a community that I can belong to where people come together and relate authentically? Will I ever be able to be a part of a community where people will shoot straight with one another, where they will resolve conflict by coming to one another, actually sitting down and trying to work it out? People are crying out for a community of unified people who are doing something worthwhile together, and Christians can and need to be that kind of community. Now, understand for believers, unity is not uniformity. It's not saying everyone must be exactly alike. That's called cookie-cutter Christianity, and it borders on cultism. The Scripture teaches that unity is a oneness of purpose found in a group of different Christians, unique believers who are mature enough to bond together and enjoy fellowship around the 90% of things that they agree about rather than argue about the 10% that they don't agree on. They derive their unity from their essential beliefs and don't risk damaging their unity over non-essentials. In other words, they don't put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. And you know, unity really is a grace-driven thing. It begins not in demanding that others change to be like us, but in admitting that we aren't so perfect ourselves. Unity is the result of three scripturally-based observations. It begins when first seeing that, as Mark uh, chapter 2, 7 says, only God can forgive our, our, our godlessness. Then secondly, as Romans 14, 4 says, only, ju- only God can judge our neighbors for their sins. And then thirdly, it, it comes from an obedience to God's command in Romans 15, 7, where we are told that we must accept who God accepts. In short, it is, it is an understanding that God loves me and makes me his child. Jesus loves my neighbor and makes him my brother. My privilege is to obediently complete the triangle, to close the circuit by loving who God loves. And when we understand these basic principles, these basic scriptural principles, we do become one and we can then work together with a single-mindedness that is truly miraculous. We make it possible for God to work through us and and like the various parts of a human body, obeying the instructions of its head. So as Christians, as believers, I must realize, we must realize how important it is for us to learn to relate in such a way that we can say to people around us, hey, join us. I don't claim that we're perfect. I certainly don't claim to be perfect. We don't claim to be perfect, but we strive to be authentic. We don't claim to see eye to eye on everything in this church. But we disagree with dignity and with grace. We don't claim to be without friction and misunderstandings, but we are committed to unity. We try to, <clears throat> we try to love one another here, to be humble, to genuinely seek to restore wounded relationships. Join us if you want to play a, a critical role on, on a team that is pursuing the most important work in the world. And it is. We must show people outside the family of Christ that the church is the only hope for a high-integrity relational community that really loves. It is the only hope. It cannot be found in social justice movements. It cannot be found in politics. It cannot be found in clubs. It cannot be found through money. The only hope, the only hope for the world is Jesus Christ, and he has given the ministry of reconciliation to us as church. It's why Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. By the way, the Greek word Paul uses here for striving together is 
Lathontus. It's a word from the field of athletics, and, and it literally means to wrestle together or to wrestle in harmony. So a comparable picture today might be it's 11 men on a football team working together to move the ball toward the goal line, right? 11 different men. Some are slower than others, some stronger, uh, others are small and fast, but all are unified around the same purpose, doing things together that they could not do alone. And that's what unity means, combining our strengths to accomplish the same purpose. And when we do, especially, especially in the face of suffering, the world notices So what does this portion of Paul's letter say to us this morning? Am I living a consistent Christian life? Am I walking the talk? And what about the second characteristic Paul listed? Am am I doing all I can to protect the unity of the church? Mark Twain once said, everyone talks about the weather, but no one does anything about it. I think this passage in Philippians encourages all of us to stand firm, to preserve the unity of the church, and to ask ourselves whether or not we are living in such a way as to be worthy of what Christ has done for us. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. As we close this morning here from Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God, the Father, through him. Friends, until we're together again, may God hold us in the hollow of his hand. Amen. God bless. Have a great week.